0: I'm Ed Gross, and this is TV Retrovision, the classic TV and film podcast where we celebrate all our yesterdays, today and tomorrow. In 1963, Elvis Presley was doing just fine, thank you very much, but in America the following year, brought with it John, Paul, George, and Ringo, better known as the Beatles, and suddenly everything changed, along with it Elvis's career. Between the Fab Four, the British Invasion, and years of some pretty bad movies, the King's image was in something of a free fall. But then, in 1968, NBC aired what would become known as the Comeback Special. And suddenly, Elvis found himself the topic of conversation again. That special, which is now 54 years old, had a lot stacked against it, from Elvis not wanting to do television, to his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, insisting that it be a Christmas special. Into that mix stepped director-producer Steve Binder, probably the best in the field at the time, who cut through the chaos and gave us an Elvis that reestablished him in the minds and hearts of his existing fans, and introduced him to a lot of new ones he is also a firm believer that without that special nobody would be talking about Elvis Presley today Steve who is currently developing a documentary about the making of the Elvis comeback special discusses how it all happened beginning with the way in which he became involved in the first place
1: got the call from uh, NBC and Bob Finkel the executive producer asking if I was available uh, to do the the Presley 68 show and. I was not a Presley fan at the time. I mean, I was amused and curious about him because of all the publicity and, the, you know, the wiggling of the hips. But I was a local California guy. I was into the Beach Boys and, you know, our acts. And, and uh, so I, I was more curious than than interested. And I had already made a deal with an iconic 50s feature film uh, producer named Walter Wanger to direct uh, his next motion picture. So I was gonna leave television and go into the movies. And as fate had it, uh, as I'm developing that and turned down NBC to do the Elvis show, uh, in that week, Wilder Wanger dies of a heart attack and the whole project falls apart. So uh, I called back Finkel and I said, if that offer is still open, Uh, I'd be interested, but on only one condition. And he laughed and said, what condition? And I said, I want to meet Elvis alone without anybody else. And I want to see if, you know, we're compatible. And if we, you know, if we even want to work together, right. He said, well, I can't do that uh, unless I get permission from Colonel Parker. So, uh, what happened was that, uh, uh, I get a call back from Finkel and he said, uh, well, you're gonna go to MGM studios where the Colonel has offices and meet meet the Colonel. And uh, so I did. And uh, you know, that's I, I just put a new book out which I can send you or you can pick up called Elvis 68. Okay. And it's got an entire chapter devoted to the background of what happened on that, that show. But to make a long long story short, the minute i met colonel parker he said okay here's the show and hands me a quarter inch audio tape which i still have of 20 christmas songs uh all pre-recorded oh boy uh, that was elvis's uh or the colonel's gift to disc jockeys all over america for christmas time and it had a picture on the front cover of elvis inside of a a uh, christmas wreath and uh he said, NBC and, and myself have agreed that this is the show. So I knew instantly I didn't want to do it.
0: Yeah,
1: And uh, so I kept my mouth shut. And the next thing I know, you know, he's doing his shtick of, uh, you know, giving me uh, a membership in his snowman's cl- club, giving me, uh, you know, uh, if this works out, you'll be directing his next movie and so forth and so on. And it's going in one ear and out the other. And I leave the office and, uh, head back to my office in Hollywood and all the time in my, my head saying, you know, uh, you know, this was, this is definitely not what I want to do. You know, I get to the office and there's a message already from Finkel and I call him back at NBC and he says, I don't know what you did to charm the Colonel, but you're in, you can meet Elvis tomorrow at four o'clock. He's wow. coming to your office. Okay. And and Elvis comes into my office the next day uh, with his entourage who just stayed in our reception area and uh, I took him back to my office and along the the uh, walls he's looking at Bones's gold records you know so he said uh, the first question he asked me uh, and I won't get into detail cuz it's been written a 100,000 times by so many people but he says what do you think of my career and right. I said, honestly, I think your career's in the toilet.
0: Wow. And
1: he, he looked at me and, and broke out laughing. Well, first of all, Finkel was a 50s producer-director himself. And so he told me on my first conversation with him that he was thinking of producing and directing Elvis himself, but he could never get through to Elvis because Elvis would never call him Bob. He always referred to him as Mr. Finkel, and uh, he just felt he had to get somebody young around Elvis's age, and somebody who could relate to him. And that and he read about my Petula Clark special, and thought, you know, he 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 felt it because Elvis didn't want to honor the contract that NBC had. Uh, the Colonel, when he made his deal with NBC, was really only looking for financing for his next movie because all the film studios had dried up and didn't want to make another Elvis movie. So the Colonel came up with the idea of going to a television network and getting them to put up the money and NBC said, we'll give you the money, which was change of habit with Mary Tyler Moore, but on one condition. And what's the condition? We want Elvis to do a television special for us. Well, when Elvis heard about the deal, he balked and told the Colonel he didn't want to do television. And that's the predicament that Finkel was in when he made the call to me. So he said, we have a signed contract, but we can't get the horse to the water. (laughs) So uh, when Elvis and I finally met, you know, you walked into my office and said, hi, Steve. And I said, hi, Elvis. So I knew right away it was going to be a different situation than Finkel and Elvis. And we went back into my office alone. And uh, we didn't talk about television. We just talked about the music business and the musicians that that uh you know the quality where it's getting better the engineering was getting better uh this was a time of the british invasion with the Beatles and the and the stones and so forth and he said you know steve i've been away from the public for eight years i'm not sure i can uh you know they'll accept me again i mean you know i haven't done a lot anything for for at least eight to ten years and uh so I'm I'm real leery about it. And besides, television is not my turf. And I said, well, what's your turf? And he said, my turf is making records. And I said, okay, then you make a record. You make an album, and I'll put pictures to it. And Priscilla told me <laughs> a few years later, when Elvis came home from that first meeting with me, he said, I don't care what the colonel says. I'm going with this guy, Bender. I got to feel really? about this, you know. Okay. And and he did. He never questioned anything. You know. In fact, I was a little, uh, you know, concerned that uh, all artists put their two cents in. I like this. I don't like that. I said yeah, after we pitched him the show. Uh, you know, I said, is there anything you don't like or anything special? And he said, no, no, I love it all. Let's do it just instantly. And and we hardly varied at all from the original format that my writers, uh, Chris Beard and Alan Bly came up with. And uh, the only thing really different, which was the heart and soul in the whole special, was convincing him to do the improv uh, acoustically. And that was just inspired by... Uh, at. Elvis decided to live at NBC while we did the special. He had a, he was renting a home either in Beverly Hills or Bel Air. And he felt the time wasted driving back and forth. (laughs) Thank God it wasn't 2018 (laughs) or it had taken hours to get back and forth. But uh, in those days it took at least an hour uh, or, you know, 50 minutes or so to get to Beverly Hills at that time of day or, or early evening. And, uh, so he said, "Do you think you could put a bed in my dressing room and I'll just live out here while we do it? You know, it's not going to be that many days." And I did. And every day after rehearsal, uh, he would go into his now bedroom and uh, get around the piano with whoever had to be hanging around at the time and uh, jammed. And you know, the uh, uh, everybody would be banging on the piano top and so forth the drum rhythm and uh you know elvis would would have obviously an acoustic guitar and they would just go on for hours every single day we were out at nbc telling stories about their past you know he had a couple of his buddies uh, uh charlie hodge was uh, an army buddy with him and uh was sort of his sidekick and uh a good musician and uh you know he had uh but DJ and Scotty, his original uh, bass, uh, his original guitar and drummer uh, were just added at the last minute when I actually got the Colonel's permission to recreate what I saw first person in the dressing room uh, out on the stage, which was, you know, to me, the I mean, that's when we got to see Elvis Presley, not all the big production numbers and the gospel number and the guitar man sequence and all the sets and costumes and extras. And I mean, to me, the, 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 reason that the 68 special holds up 50 years later is because it's totally Elvis. And it's, it's, it's the reason that, you know, even watching NBC's tribute to, you know, him the other night, uh, you realize that, you know, he was a one and only, I mean, nobody could touch him as, as far as, you know, Oh, he's as good as Elvis, or he's better than Elvis. I mean, Elvis was a one and only. He, by the time I finished shooting the show, and and uh, you know, I was convinced he was that special. And he 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 was just you know the kind of person that you, just draws you in just to look at him. You know, he, he, if if nobody even knew who he was, he would get your attention when he walked into a room. And when he performed, you know, all the charisma that he had, you can you can tell why he's, you know, a living legend, uh you know, while he was uh was was still performing and so forth. And I think even now after his death you realize, you know, there are only a few iconic people probably in our entertainment history that would be in that category, you know, maybe a Marilyn Monroe or a James Dean or somebody like that. But I became a huge fan of his both, uh, artistically and as a person. And, uh, you know, again, uh, that special, I, I've, I've been interviewed a million times, obviously, and I, I've said, you know, with all the shows I've done and, and my entire almost 60 year career now, uh, I'll always be known as the guy who produced and directed the Elvis special. That is the pinnacle, I guess, of, you know, when people remember what I did or, or talk of me or anything. It's always Elvis, you know, uh, but I've had so many great experiences and so eclectic, you know, uh, from Pee Wee Herman, Pee Wee's Playhouse yeah. to uh, star wars holiday special. And, and, uh, you know, uh, I produced and directed the Mac Davis, uh, series on NBC, the Motown series with Smokey Robinson and on and on and on. But, uh, I've loved it. I mean, to me, you know, most people have a job and then they can't wait to get off to go, you know, have fun. For me, it was looking forward to getting up in the morning. I hated to stop working, yeah. you know. I, I would burn out <laughs> tons of editors who were half my age because they, they'd they be so exhausted in the editing room and I would want to finish it from start to finish on the first day, you know. Absolutely. So uh,
0: anyway. How significant was uh, that special? In the resurrection, if that's the right word, of Elvis's career of bringing him back into the spotlight again.
1: I would say, without the '68 special, we wouldn't be talking about Elvis Presley. Really, we'd rem- we'd remember him pre '68 for his movies and his uh, you know early Ed Sullivan appearances and so forth. And uh, but I think he would just be a memory, period. I don't think there'd be, you know, there there certainly wouldn't be that much interest in, in touring his home in Graceland. There wouldn't be all these huge corporations that are behind him uh, post. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I remember going to Australia uh, a couple of years ago and a whole Town in Australia devotes an entire week on Elvis Presley. And the headline of the newspaper was, you know, it's only because of the 68 special that we're even doing this, you know, period. But
0: but why? I I mean, what was it about that special then that made it such an important pivotal moment in that man's career and in in his legacy?
1: Because with all his success previous to that, the great mystery by the world now i mean generations is you know they never got to see the real elvis until 68 they never got to realize you know he had a great sense of humor he he was you know he always played down his musicianship but he was he was a fabulous musician and most of all this charismatic entertainer that was never shown in any of the movies i mean You know, you depended upon the movie being a hit, not just his performance. Uh, and you know, that flash of why he became, uh, so popular now, well, let me put it this way. Elvis always thought before 68 that his real success was based on, you know, Colonel Parker's brilliance as a, as a manager, making decisions. RCA's huge publicity machine and marketing machine and so forth, but he never felt he was responsible for his own success. For Mm -hmm. me, when I watch back the 68 special, I see a man rediscovering himself and saying, you know, it's that moment on the Academy Awards when, uh, uh, trying to think of the actress who said, you love me. You really love me. Sally field. Yeah. Sally. I mean, perfect example, you know, where, you'd think these people would be the most secure, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, people in the world. But I find almost all artists are, once they're in front of that camera and they're being judged by, you know, millions and millions of people, uh, they're, you know, they're scared. They're they're insecure. I mean, they need to be, I, I think that's the goal of, of being a director, is giving them, you don't have to speak the language, you just have to give them a look that tells, you know, tells them that what they're doing is great, you know, and, uh, it, it, even when you're doing a a dramatic film and, and the actors are doing multiple takes, uh, they're looking at you for, you know, a positive sign that you, you know, you like what they're doing, you know, you're, you're, uh, when to say, okay, let's move on. You've done it, you know? And I think Elvis at the time, uh, you know, was was so, you know, insecure uh, that on camera, this man, you know, gaining confidence as he went along, when we did the improv and he tried to get out of it, the last second where, you know, I almost had to force him out onto the stage and said, you know, because he told me he couldn't remember what he did in the dressing room, he couldn't any of the songs he couldn't remember any of the stories and I scribbled out on paper basically what I remembered and and uh, I said you just got to go out there even if you just say hello and goodbye and come off the stage you've got to go out there and the next thing I know he forgot he was doing television he was just out having the time of his life and I, I it, that cliche in vaudeville where you got to get the hook to get him off the stage yeah. he did two hours of that stuff and, and that was you know it's subliminal it, you can't you can't articulate exactly you know what you felt or saw but i feel even when you know when i go to see something and especially paying money at a box office to go see a movie if i don't feel emotion i don't care how many millions of dollars they paid for the technical and the scenery Sweet. and the i got to cry i got to laugh i got to do something that i feel inside you know, and, and I feel that was why I, it was so evident in the in the tribute show that, that NBC just did to him with all these great performers on there. And I mean, many of them are great. I'm a big fan of Ed Sheeran. I'm a big fan of, of uh, you know, so many of the artists who appeared on there. And nobody could touch Elvis. I mean, even the little clips that they inserted into the show just showed, you know, nobody was going to out Elvis Elvis on that special you know, and, uh, so I, uh, I just feel the 68 special and not because I did it because I look at it and I, I more say to myself, did I do that? Right. <laughs> as opposed to. I did it, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it just, uh, as I've said, he was, he was like an uncaged, you know, wild animal in that arena of just, uh, you know, uh, showing, You know, we didn't get to rehearse the 68 special when it came to the improv. I mean, the guys hadn't played with Elvis for, you know, at least probably 15, 20 years, uh, Scotty and DJ. And they just came in and just picked up from where they left off all those years earlier. It's like you or I having a, a person we meet who we instantly befriend and then we don't see him for years, and yet when we see him again, it's like we were with him yesterday. There are other people that you're with 24-7, and you just don't feel that closeness, you know. And uh, so I can't, I can't define it, but I do know, uh, you know, there's not another Elvis uh, you know, that you can kind of you, you, you even compared to him. I mean, that's why he's so idolized by other artists, Uh, you know?
0: And the improv Uh, thing you were saying, I mean, the the part of the show, the improv show, that is, I haven't seen the special in a very long time, but that's him interacting with the audience, right? That's where he goes out there and he's just, yeah, he's
1: doing this little boxing ring stage. Right. And uh, with no ropes, obviously, but he's, uh, he's just picking up, where he left off years and years earlier. I mean, it's the first time he's he's totally uninhibited. He just does what he does. As I said, I'm convinced he forgot he was even being televised. He was right. just out there doing what he loved doing.
0: That's amazing.
1: Seriously. I mean, the audience was stunned. You know, the colonel uh, I got to get you a book that I just wrote because you know, he the colonel tried to sabotage that segment and uh Really? you know, even to the point of where he insisted that he would give out the tickets to the audience. And then, you know, when I showed up, there was no audience and we had to go beg people, even at a drive-in restaurant who were eating breakfast. You want to come see Elvis Presley, you know, at NBC. Well, the Colonel was all about control and power period. I mean, his whole, you know, the, the, uh, the concept that he had a, uh, uh, I had put no Christmas songs into the show <laughs> and he refused to let NBC even broadcast the show initially because, uh, he, uh, insist, you know, every day he would come to NBC insisting that I put Christmas songs in the show and Elvis and I had decided, uh, you know, as I said, Elvis said, I don't care what the Colonel says, Elvis would tell me, you know, don't bother don't put one in and i didn't then we got to the end where i delivered the master and thank god in the improv which was not scripted not rehearsed he sang blue christmas and thank god
0: he so got one saved christmas the show song getting on there. the air yeah
1: that's right and uh but uh anyway it was just you know it was strictly uh i, I mean i saw a major executive's power to the colonel as if the colonel had some magical power or something like that. Really and I could care less, you know. Yeah. I didn't uh I could always go to work at my dad's cash station. Yeah, right. <laughs> so,
0: exactly. You always had that.
1: Yeah. So but the colonel felt everybody could be bought off. Everybody, you know, there's some point where he could get them to do anything he wanted and I think when he met me and realized, you know, there was You know, I could care less about his edicts and and so forth. And uh, I remember one day uh, I had to go into, uh, while we're in the middle of production, Elvis and I get called at the colonel's little office uh, near the stage. And uh, Elvis standing alongside of me and the colonel says, uh, it's been called to my attention that uh, you have no Christmas songs in the show. Elvis wants a Christmas song in the show. Don't you, Elvis? and he turns to Elvis and I look at Elvis and Elvis has his head bowed and his, uh, hands covering his, is crush like a little kid. And he says, uh, uh, yes, sir. To the Colonel. Really? And then, uh, yeah. And then, uh, so I said, fine. I, I if Elvis wants a Christmas song in the show, I'll put a Christmas song in the show. Okay, boys go back to work. And, uh, you know, We walk out of his, his office, and Elvis me in the ribs comes to life and says, fuck him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we walk down on stage, and uh, I never put a Christmas song in the show.
0: Wow. But it's amazing to me that he would still – you think Elvis Presley – and, and uh, this is one of the things I was going to ask you. It's amazing to me this man did not push back harder against the colonel, especially at that stage of his career.
1: Well, you have to realize that I I was convinced that the, Elvis wasn't sure – that the Colonel wasn't the reason that he was so successful. And, and, uh, you know, he was also a country boy for real. I mean, he grew up in Mississippi, told me never saw a white person for the first few years of his life. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, I think he had a sense of gut loyalty that he just, and his father Vernon evidently had bonded with Parker, and uh, I guess between the colonel and Parker, uh, and Vernon, they they could get uh, Elvis to do anything. Yeah. And uh, you know because when when we parted ways at the end, you know uh, Elvis told me you know this experience was. Uh, He was never going to sing a song he didn't believe in. He was never going to make a movie that he didn't work with a great director. And so he went on and on. And I said, Elvis, I hear you. We were just alone in the COVID. We just screened the show. And I said, but I'm not sure you're strong enough to stand up to to do all that. And I unfortunately proved to be right. You know, he ended up just, you know, the Colonel loved Vegas because uh, the Colonel ended up dead broke. He gambled all his money away in Vegas. And that's why Elvis was in vegas and i I said and a lot of the fans resented what I said, but I don't think Elvis died of drugs, I think he died of boredom and and I think uh you know the uh, uh the whole I know Elvis wanted to do to travel the world and so forth and so on there's a great book you if you're interested in researching uh Atlanta nash out of uh i think she lives in Kentucky, but she's a real valid uh, a novelist, and she wrote uh, a book called *The Colonel* on Simon and Schuster. Right. It's a it's a fascinating story, and and Parker would have been a fascinating story even if he never met Elvis Presley. I mean, when you read about his background, and you know, he died in in World War II. Every male in the United States had had to register for the draft. He didn't. He was not a citizen of any country, even though he was born in Holland. They had written him off as being dead. Years and years earlier, his family thought he was dead, and uh, he risked not registering during World War II, and yeah. uh, the government didn't catch him. And uh, but he he was also pre World War II. He joined the army in Hawaii and was given a mental discharge. I mean, it's a fascinating read. Wow,
0: that that is amazing to me. You know, yeah. Were you shocked then that? or maybe you weren't because you had this feeling about Elvis, you know, about the Colonel and Elvis when Elvis sort of descended the way he did, he was on drugs and and then died. And I think it was 77. I mean, did that shock you or did you kind of see it coming given where things
1: were? You know, after, after I finished Elvis and uh, you know, there were the only communication I had, I was persona non grata, obviously with Colonel Parker. So I was blocked from communicating with him in every direction. The only communication I had was my musical director, Billy Goldenberg. Had uh, uh, he did uh, scored the movie uh, either Charo or Change of Habit, and Elvis used to tell Billy to tell me such and such and so forth. That's the only way he could communicate That's with so me. So crazy that this and, man uh, cannot
0: communicate. Okay, go ahead. I'm
1: sorry. And uh, so it was really a case of I moved on. I mean, I just didn't you know, that wasn't my life and I wasn't going to, uh, you know, it was, it was so, you know, I just, when I heard that he had passed away and, and I'd seen pictures of him as this bloated figure. And I knew that Jerry Weintraub was involved in his life, who was very similar to me as, the, as the Colonel was personality wise. Right. Uh, I just knew, you know, he was trapped and he, he didn't have the strength to get out of it, you know? And, yeah. uh, but uh i you know i I wrote in in my book that you know he ended up being a saloon singer in Las Vegas, you know, which is the last thing he wanted to do and uh you know but it's it's a it's a you know every great story has some kind of tragedy in it, and his is a great tragedy to me.
0: We don't know about you, but we're all shook up. And the best way to handle that would be to subscribe to this podcast. Give us a five-star review and tell your friends about us. We'll see you next time and thank you very much.